This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Sighted Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. Ticketmaster has a problem. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Taylor Swift's tickets went on sale. Millions of fans tried to buy them in the pre-sale. The site crashed the general public sale was cancelled. That isn't Ticketmaster's main problem, though. When you anger Taylor Swift, you anger Taylor Swift fans. And apparently when you anger Swifties, the Department of Justice takes notice. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with crises and vices. I end up in crisis. In 2010, Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation to form a monopoly that now controls most of the American events market. So, where you used to be able to call your local venue and go pick up a ticket, now you go through Ticketmaster and you pay them a fee for the privilege. The merger was only allowed because Live Nation pinky promised not to use their market power to bully venues. Did you hear my covert narcissism? My disguise is altruism, like some kind of but uh, they totally bully the venues anyway. There's even a class action against them for withholding concerts from venues that don't use Ticketmaster. And they might have gotten away with it if it weren't for that meddling Taylor Swift. The DOJ is now investigating Live Nation and Ticketmaster, and a group of fans are suing them over the ticket sale. America's favorite pop star has emerged as an unlikely figurehead for antitrust legislation. An antitrust hero? This is more than just a music issue, though. Books, TV, academic publishing, film, events, all the creative outlets you can think of, the people who are getting rich are the ones who manage to insert themselves between the audience and the creators. In each creative industry, there's an hourglass-shaped economy. In the center, between the wide pool of creators and audiences, is one company, buyer and seller, extracting as much value from both sides as possible, leaving creative workers with less money for their work. It's a capitalist choke point. Choke point capitalism is our term for these monopsonistic markets, markets where you have customers on one side and people who want to provide services or products to those customers on the other. And then in between, you have like an intermediary, someone who just sits between them and has cornered all of those customers into some kind of walled garden. And in order for the sellers to reach the buyers, they have to go through these choke points. This is Cory Doctorow. He's a journalist who covers antitrust and copyright. 
He's also a sci-fi author, so you might remember him from a previous Darts and Letters where I talked to him about post-scarcity. He co-wrote a book called Chokepoint Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. His co-author, by the way, is Rebecca Giblin. She's director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia and a professor at Melbourne Law School. So today, Corey is going to talk us through how we can overcome chokepoint capitalism and get artists paid. To get there, we need to go through how choke points are created. So let's start with the music industry. The original choke point there was the record labels. They put themselves in between musicians and audiences. Artists get incomprehensible contracts where they're unlikely to make any money at all from record sales or streams. This worked really well for the labels. But as technology improved, it got easier for artists to record and release independently. And despite the internet enabling illegal downloading, it also enabled artists to connect directly with fans. So when musicians had other options, their contracts with record labels got better. Royalty rates in the 90s were usually around 10%. Today, 25% is pretty standard. Things weren't exactly great for artists, what with Napster and other piracy options, but it looked like they were getting better. Then capitalism did what capitalism's going to do, and the labels found a way to claw back what little artists had gained. They did it by supporting a new choke point, a new entrant into the music world by the tech industry. The stranglehold was back. You might even be using that new choke point to listen to this show. Spotify. So the interesting thing about the music choke points is that they were not prevented by copyright, but enabled by copyright. So the big three record labels, Sony, Warner, and Universal, between them control 70% of the world's global recorded music. They were able to acquire these copyrights not by investing, by and large, in these songs, but rather by acquiring the labels that had made those investments at fire sale prices when those labels failed during uh, one crisis or another a lot during the Napster Wars. And so any service that wanted to legitimately sell music in the post-Napster age had to go and bend the knee to the big three labels. And that's what Spotify did. Spotify said, look, we're not going to have a business if we can't offer access to the 70% of recorded music that you three firms control. Tell us what it's going to take for you to be our uh, partner here. And they said, well, we're going to have to be your literal partner. You're going to have to give us shares in the business. We're going to become significant shareholders in your business for free. That's going to be part of the deal. And we're going to demand most favored nation status. So we have to be paid the most of anyone you get paid. No one can be paid any more than us and your system. So the big three labels now also owned parts of Spotify. The new choke point is the major labels and Spotify working together. They sit between artists and audiences and extract value. That ownership stake also gives them access to all kinds of accounting tricks that filter money away from artists and towards label and tech execs. I'm sure you're aware of how little artists get paid for a stream on Spotify. Well, this is part of the reason why. Where it gets really bad for artists is that they then turned around and said, hey, business partners, you need to contain your costs. So how about this? We're not going to charge you very much money at all per stream. We're going to charge you 
tiny infinitesimal sums per stream. Now, because we're so structurally important to you, we do expect you to guarantee a monthly minimum payment to us. So that had an enormous advantage for those firms per se, because now if they were being guaranteed, say, $20 million a month each from uh, Spotify, maybe only $10 million of that was attributable to any particular song. The other $10 million was just um, money that came out of that guarantee they got every month. And they didn't have to share that with artists. And if they did share with artists, they could disperse it on any terms they wanted. They could give all the artists all of it or some of the artists some of it and give the rest to their shareholders. It was their money to play with. But there was another important advantage here is because they had most favored nation status, by setting the rate very, very low, they ensured that the cost to operate Spotify was very, very low because the 30% of independent labels and artists that they didn't control couldn't ask for more money than they were willing to accept, but also weren't entitled to those guarantees and other goodies that they were getting, like free advertising, inclusion in the big playlists, and so on. It's easier to get your music heard than ever before and harder than ever to make a living from it. Pretty much any creative industry you look to has a choke point now. As a journalist, I'm obviously interested in how news and media is produced and paid for. And on the occasions I do write for a newspaper or a magazine, it's not very well paid. The money from advertising in newspapers has all but disappeared. The number of newsroom jobs has been dropping rapidly for a decade now, and it's projected to keep falling. To put that in a starker light, 20 years ago, there were around two public relations officers for every journalist in the USA. Today, that ratio is six to one. But it's easier than ever to access journalists' content, and demand for news is not going away. But this is not a supply and demand problem. It's that between that supply and that demand, there's a choke point. Google and Facebook, they control 70% of the US ad market. So if you want to monetize your online content now, you need to go through them. This happened after the news business was already weakened by mergers, leveraged buyouts, and the upheavals of the internet's early days. Now what little money is left is getting stuck in Google's choke point. The people who lose out are, as always, the workers. So, me. Even as the entertainment industry has grown more profitable, the share of income accruing to creators, both in real terms and as a proportion of those profits, has declined. And we kept seeing these large firms that were becoming more profitable demand more copyright as an answer to this. And we kept seeing creators stand up for these large firms. And we thought, you know, maybe these large firms don't have these creators' best interests at heart, whether they're entertainment firms or tech firms. You know, maybe in an industry dominated by both tech and entertainment monopolies, giving creators more copyright is like giving a bullied kid more lunch money. Like, it doesn't matter how much lunch money you give that kid, the bullies are going to take it. And the fact that they use some of that lunch money to fund a campaign, asking the you know parents of the country to please think of those poor hungry kids and give them more lunch money, doesn't mean they're going to leave them with any of the lunch money. So who's got the lunch money? I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. 
Amazon's Jeff Bezos, speaking there just after a space flight in which the rocket regrettably returned to Earth. Amazon is the pinnacle of choke point capitalism. They want to be the everything store, but they started with books. The story in book publishing is similar to the music industry. Big publishing companies sat between authors and audiences. In the 90s, they merged until just five publishers controlled most of the market. Bookstores also consolidated. And then a new startup came along and looked like it might open up a whole new world of independent publishing. But that's not what happened. So back when Amazon was getting started, and when it was mostly a bookstore, they decided that they were going to amp up their profits so that they could do more stuff to rope in more customers. For example, lower prices, which if you're a customer may sound really good, but they were going to do it by destroying publishers. So they started a project called Project Gazelle. And under Project Gazelle, Amazon's procurement officers, their buyers, were instructed to identify publishers that were weak the way a cheetah would identify a weak gazelle and pounce on them and take them down, demand unsustainable discounts from them that even if they drove them eventually into bankruptcy would still lower prices to the point where you would have to be a fool to buy your books anywhere except Amazon. There were lots of publishers who were targeted this way and only one of them stood up to uh, Amazon. That publisher had about 8 or 9% of its sales go through Amazon. But it couldn't afford a 9% shrinkage in its sales. And so when this publisher, Melville House, told Amazon that they wouldn't give these unsustainable discounts, these unprofitable discounts to Amazon, and Amazon took the buy button off of all of the pages for Melville House books, Melville House very quickly approached the brink of bankruptcy. And they decided that bleeding out slowly was better than being forced into bankruptcy immediately. And they gave Amazon those unsustainable discounts. And, you know, when these publishers, then they, they give these unsustainable discounts to Amazon, the way that they make it up is by cutting the wages of their workers and cutting the rates that they pay their writers. They, they have to make up the payments somewhere. Like Spotify, Amazon created a choke point through brutal accounting. But they did get some help maintaining that choke point from the American federal government and copyright legislation. Audible, Amazon's audiobook division, has cornered 90% of the audiobook market. Every audiobook you download is wrapped in software called DRM, Digital Rights Management, which stops you copying that audiobook to another player. And you may have noticed that moving an audiobook from Audible to a rival platform is not a copyright infringement, particularly if you have the creator's authorization, but even if you don't, in the same way that like format shifting by ripping a CD is not a copyright infringement. Breaking DRM is not that hard. I mean, I could literally just play the audiobook and record it into a different device. You just need a couple of cables to do it the old-fashioned way. Or if you know a bit more about software than I do, then you don't even need to take the time to do that. Unfortunately, breaking DRM in the US is now punishable by a $500,000 fine and five years in prison, thanks to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That was a deliberate choice. When the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was enacted, they could have said, it is against the law to break DRM in order to commit copyright infringement. But they didn't. Instead, they passed a law that said, it is against the law to break DRM, period. And in fact, what they said is, it's against the law to traffic in a DRM circumventing tool to give someone a piece of software they can use 
to break DRM. And since all software is a copyrighted work, at least all software beyond a trivial degree of complexity is a copyrighted work, what we see now is the use of the of Section 12.1 of the DMCA to make it impossible to use your lawfully acquired property in lawful ways way outside of entertainment products. So, you know, changing your printer so it can accept third-party ink. In fact, the new uh, Colorado Right to Repair Bill for powered wheelchairs specifically identifies that DMCA 1201 and DRM fears stop people from adjusting the controls on their own powered wheelchairs so that they can steer them more effectively. Again, this is very clearly not a copyright infringement, but by making it impossible for you to affect those adjustments on your own, the companies that make the powered wheelchairs generate Medicare billings every time they're called out to adjust them uh, through their own service technicians. Part of the way Audible has cornered the market is by making it too expensive to switch to a competitor. You'd lose all the audiobooks you'd already bought on Audible, thanks to this DRM. So Corey and Rebecca Giblin didn't release the audiobook of Chokepoint Capitalism on Audible, except for one chapter. I mean, Audible is a very dirty business. There is this uh, kind of seductive power that Amazon has where they want you to buy a subscription. And if you buy a subscription, you get a credit every month that you can redeem for an audiobook. And until pretty recently, those credits were on some very generous terms. You could return an audiobook. So even though you only got one per month, if you listen to it, Amazon would bombard you with messages inviting you to return it. This is a great deal if you're a subscriber. But what the subscribers didn't know and what the majority of creators who were supplying audiobooks to, to Audible didn't know is that these returns would result in having your royalty clawed back. And the way that this came to light was that Audible accidentally had a glitch that recorded three weeks worth of returns on a single royalty statement. And suddenly creators figured out exactly how much money was being taken out of their pay packet every week. And um, this kicked off a movement called Audiblegate, where Audible authors all over the world joined forces to investigate what was going on and protest it. That was kicked off by a writer in Perth, Australia called Susan May. And one of the participants in Audiblegate was another ACX writer, a retired forensic accountant from the UK, Colleen Cross, who writes mystery novels about sleazy finance crime. And Cross decided that, you know, there's never just one ant. So she went and she started to look more deeply into Audible's accounting practices. And she discovered that Audible wasn't just clawing back one copy for every return, they were clawing back multiple copies for every return. And that they weren't calculating royalties on the basis that they claimed they were calculating it on. And that all in all, there were hundreds of millions of dollars in wage theft from Audible against those ACX authors. Now, I don't sell my books on Audible. This DRM thing was a deal breaker even before Audiblegate came to light. And so this year, we kickstarted the Chokepoint Capitalism audiobook. We did a really good edition. And partway through the Kickstarter's a little stunt, we packaged up the chapter about Audible and about how sleazy Audible is as an Audible exclusive and then uploaded it to Audible using ACX. And that's the only part of the audiobook that you can get on Audible. I do love a bit of kind of intellectual pettiness. It's <laughs> <laughs> I do like a stunt. So that's how choke points are created and maintained. And it's easy to feel hopeless in the face of the incredible market power of these companies. 
But there are things we can do. Corey Doctorow talks me through the ideas behind choke point capitalism and how to fix it so workers get paid properly after the break. If you're new to Darts and Letters, welcome. We're a left-wing show about the politics of ideas and the people who shape those ideas. Maybe you came here from the New Books Network where we're syndicated, or you could have found us on Harbinger Media Network, this non-profit collective we're also a part of. However you found us, we'd really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe or the follow button. We put out episodes like this every two weeks, roughly, and I'd love it if you stick around for the next one. When I started reading Choke Point Capitalism, there was a word I had never seen before. Monopsony. And it's pretty fundamental to how these choke points operate. So I asked Corey to define monopsony for me. It's the flip side of monopoly. It's the one that no one's ever heard of because uh, there isn't a terrible board game called monopsony that we've all uh, wanted to strangle our relatives after playing. And monopsony is conceptually very similar to monopoly. It's a buyer's market, not a seller's market. But there are ways in which sort of empirically it is different. So firms that are forming monopolies, that are forming seller's markets, need to corner very large portions of the market before they're able to exercise what economists call market power, the power to set prices without worrying about competitors swooping in and lowering prices. They generally have to be able to command the majority of the market. Often they need some kind of natural monopoly to backstop it. So think of how a cable operator can use the fact that it's got the only franchise to use the telephone poles and the sewers to really be able to set prices. And anyone who lives in the United States knows that the cable operators use that monopoly to gouge us on prices and sell us very poor service that gets worse every year relative to the rest of the world. But a monopsony is much easier to attain. Most suppliers in a supply chain really can't afford to lose even as little as 8 or 10% of their market share. It seems like all these conflicts of interest are just obvious antitrust violations. So how did antitrust laws end up working for monopolists? Corey tells me it's down to a fundamental ideological shift in antitrust enforcement. It used to be that in business school, they at least used to pretend that competition was the lifeblood of capitalism. But these days, the doctrine taught in an MBA is really about avoiding competition. You know, Peter Thiel says uh, competition is for losers. We hold up Warren Buffett and his enduring business wisdom that you should seek out businesses with wide, sustainable moats, which is to say businesses that no one can compete with. That once you can establish an industry that you can exclude new market entrants from, that no one else can compete with you in, then you can set the terms and you can get a really good deal. And since regulators have stopped giving a damn about antitrust and have basically dialed down antitrust enforcement for 40 years, if you can get that monopoly, you can probably keep it. The Chicago School comes up pretty often in the book. I think people are vaguely aware that the Chicago School of Economics is basically free market neoliberalism. But you mentioned Robert Bork specifically. So let's talk about Robert Bork and what were his ideas. I think consumerism is a probably a good place to start there. What were his ideas around that and how do they feed into choke points and choke point capitalism? So to understand consumer welfare, you have to understand what it replaced, which was this other theory called harmful dominance. 
So the antitrust laws in America, they begin in the late 19th century and their response to, you know, really odious monopoly practices by rail companies and sugar companies and so on, where you had these big trusts that controlled whole industries or whole sectors. And you had um, lawmakers like uh, John Sherman, who, who passed the Sherman Act of 1890, saying, you know, we decided we wouldn't have a king ruling over our country. We shouldn't allow an autocrat of trade to rule over this country, a, a king of trade. And, you know, the Sherman Act and its successors, the Clayton Act and the Federal Trade Act, they all took as their starting point that if a company was big enough, it didn't matter if it was efficient, if it worked well. The problem was that it would fail really badly, that if it decided to hurt us, if it was too big to fail and too big to jail, it would effectively act with impunity. And so it was important not to let the companies get so big that they could no longer be policed. And so as a matter of course, these antitrust laws prohibited companies from engaging in anti-competitive mergers or acquisitions. So companies couldn't merge with one another if they were already competitors. If there was a new company on the scene, a big existing company couldn't buy it up to neutralize it. Companies couldn't stop new companies from entering the market by doing predatory pricing. Think about how Uber entered the market, used billions of dollars in Saudi royal money to charge less for taxi rides than it cost them to give those taxi rides. Uber lost 41 cents on the dollar for about a decade as a means of forcing all the other cab companies out of business, of uh, bringing public transit to its knees and so on, with the intention of establishing both a monopoly and a monopsony where they could pay their drivers less and charge their riders more. All that conduct was effectively prohibited under antitrust law. And starting in the mid-1970s, a group from the University of Chicago led by Robert Bork, and Bork was, um, he was quite a guy. He had been Richard Nixon's solicitor general and was an unindicted co-conspirator to Nixon's crimes. He formulated a theory that was really just genuinely bonkers. So he didn't just disagree with this idea of antitrust. He didn't just think it was wrong. He actually thought that we were reading the laws wrong, or at least that's what he said. He published this book called The Antitrust Paradox, where he said that if you read the laws really carefully, like sort of did a, a deep QAnon-style reading, you would find that despite the fact that the laws were really clearly written and that the people who wrote the laws gave really clear speeches explaining what they were worried about, this harmful dominance, that what they really cared about was consumer welfare was the idea that prices might go up if a bad monopoly was formed. Now, he didn't think that this was very likely. He thought most monopolies were amazing. He believed in kind of heroic uh, businessmen who would, uh, if they created a monopoly, if they had access to the capital markets, and if the capital markets trusted them with so much money that they could clean out all their competitors, buy them all, or force them out of business with, with um, predatory prices then it just meant that those people were like super geniuses and they were going to do something amazing for the whole human race. And the last thing we wanted to do was get in the way of, you know, Iron Man creating like the future of the technology and creating every amazing gadget that we could possibly want. We just needed to let those people run free without being hassled by petty bureaucrats. Better than a, a thousand wicked monopolies should go free than one of these poor innocent monopolies should be crushed by an unaccountable regulator. And so he said that this is what the law actually said. And he said the only time that regulators should bestir themselves to take action 
is if they could show that prices had gone up as a result of monopolistic conduct. And that's an important qualifier. It wasn't just that prices had gone up. You know, if you want to stop monopolies from being crushed by mean and petty bureaucrats because monopolies are good for us, you want to make sure that the only monopolies that you take apart are the genuinely bad ones that are raising prices because they have market power and not the innocent ones that are just caught in a a higher wage bill or an oil crisis not of their own making. And so he said that the only way you could do that was by making these very, very abstract mathematical models that only he and his friends at the University of Chicago School of Economics knew how to make and interpret. And it turned out that if you paid them as a potential monopolist to make one of these models to you know, use as basis for securing uh, merger approval or to get out of an enforcement action, they could always produce a model that somehow proved that you were on the up and up and that your monopoly was good, actually. And that was the the way things ran for the next 40 years. And for the next 40 years, we got more and more monopolies, you know, that we're, we're not just down to, you know, five big publishers and four big studios and three big record labels and two big ad tech companies and one big ebook retailer. It's also the case that there's one company that makes nearly all the eyeglasses and owns all the eyeglass stores and makes more than 50% of the lenses. And it's also the case that there's three big giant shipping cartels who for years have told their regulators to buzz off when the regulators said, hey, you know, you do get these efficiencies of scale when you make your ships bigger, but aren't you worried that one of them is going to get stuck in the Suez Canal? Two companies make all the groceries in your grocery store. Three companies control the meat packing. Three companies control the poultry and on and on and on. These are not the result of the great forces of history bearing down on the moment, creating monopolies. This is the result of our choice not to stop monopolies. You know, if every day you put down rat poison and you don't have any rats, and then one day you stop putting down rat poison, and then a year later you're overrun by rats, it's not a mystery what happened. Yeah, and now we've kind of moved on to this point where, and this blew my mind, the US's antitrust laws seem to actually be written to benefit the monopolists and monopsonists, and they've been used to bust unions, essentially. Like, there's only certain people that can join unions because of antitrust laws. Yeah, well, if you are misclassified as a contractor, then you are, for the purposes of the law, an independent business. And so if you think about, say, Uber drivers, each one of those is meant to be a tiny little company all unto themselves. And so if all of the companies in a sector get together and demand higher wages or higher prices, then that's the one thing antitrust law is supposed to prevent, right, is prices going up. But it's not just in the U.S. This is rampant all over the world. Now, it's it's interesting because most of the world's antitrust law looks a lot like U.S. antitrust law. In particular, European and British antitrust law looks a lot like U.S. antitrust law because in the wake of World War II, during the Marshall Plan, a lot of European law was rewritten using U.S. law as a template. And so it really does read much alike because it it comes from the same source text. And it was in the same era in which Ronald Reagan fell under the thrall of Robert Bork. Reagan actually tried to put Bork on the Supreme Court, but his actions as Nixon solicitor general turned out to be disqualifying. That other lawmakers all around the world, uh, whether that was Brian Mulroney in Canada, where I'm from, or Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom, where I later became a citizen, or European lawmakers, all embraced this same doctrine because there was a lot of money behind it. There was a, a real full court press 
from people who are already rich and who realize that if they could form monopolies and exclude competitors, that they could become richer still. The doctrine today that these people bequeath to us is a doctrine that says that competition is wasteful. Okay, I want to move on to sort of um, the the more hopeful side of the book, because a whole half of it is dedicated to suggesting different ways to structure various industries. I really like that you did that. It's one thing to point out a problem, but it's another thing to try and affect change. And you even quote like the OG neoliberal Milton Freeman, like he described his work as leaving ideas on the table for when a crisis occurs so that someone powerful can pick it up. And there are a bunch of different ideas for legislation and programs in there. They're all really exciting, but I want to focus on some of the sort of bigger ideas specifically for this show. And I think my favorite is the idea of local co-ops for creative works. I really loved this example you had about, I think it's called Tracks, which is a local music streaming service in Chapel Hill in North Carolina. So let's talk about cooperative ownership and co-ops and how they can help widen some of those choke points. Yeah. So Trax is a really interesting service. It's run through the, the public library. It only features local artists and it has an interesting model where once you listen to a track a certain number of times, it's yours forever. So you pay per listen, not very much. And, but after you've heard it enough times, it's yours. And it's a way to create a kind of circular economy. It's been hugely successful at allowing local artists to connect with local audiences. And, you know, local artists have something national artists don't have, which is a local connection. They they are producing something that has the terroir of the place that they're from. And libraries, as the last institution left in America, where you are welcome even if you can't pay and even if you don't want to pray, are really well situated to be honest brokers for that kind of service. It's kind of a, a small scale thing though at the moment though, right? So is there a way to broaden this out to a like Spotify level where it's a genuine competitor with the big streamers? I don't think it's meant to be. I think replicating it so that acts across America or across the world can connect with their local audiences makes sense. That's something libraries are actually really good at is knowledge sharing kind of comes with the territory when you're a librarian. I should mention that I'm a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where the service is also based. And I feel a warm glow when I think about it. But I don't think the intention here is to create something on the scale of Spotify. This is about creating local connections. You know, we have other proposals in the book to deal with very large firms, but creating small, locally appropriate Uh, services makes a lot of sense too. You know, it is not the case that we are going to make every artist into Taylor Swift. You know, instead we can aspire to making sure that every artist that has an audience that is large enough to sustain that artist's creative production can connect with that audience in a way that allows them to continue to do so. I kind of want to talk about Taylor Swift (laughs) because she's emerged as an unlikely antitrust hero recently. I don't know if she did this deliberately, but kind of exposed Live Nation and Ticketmaster's monopoly. She previously forced Universal Music Group to pay all artists more money for streaming. So I guess I don't have a good question about Taylor Swift. I just kind of want to get your take, your opinion on her. Well, Taylor Swift is an example of what happens when you have a little bit of solidarity, right? It is great that Taylor Swift, one artist who happens to be the most successful artist in America right now, has solidarity with her fellow recording artists. It shows you what you can get when artists stick together. 
And, you know, when all the artists stick together, you don't have to rely on one heroic artist doing the right thing. Instead, you can band together and you can have a much more reliable set of victories. Instead of it being an anomaly, it can be the norm. So, you know, we tell another story in the book about the Writers Guild of America who control the labor rights for screenwriters. And so all the movies and TV shows in Hollywood get written by Writers Guild writers. And the Writers Guild had this huge problem, which is that they had a choke point in the form of the talent agencies. The talent agencies had gone through waves of consolidation. They had been reduced to four large firms, two of which were controlled by private equity companies. And these four firms were trying to extract ever larger sums of money from the talent that they represented. In fact, there were showwriters who were discovering that 90% of the money was going to their agency and only 10% was going to them. That was a, a reversal of the traditional 10-90 split. It, it went 90 for the agency, 10 for the writer instead of the other way around. They were working under worse conditions. Everything about their job was getting worse, even as TV was getting more profitable. And it was about to get still worse because the, the uh, labels were buying their own studios and proposing that they would negotiate on behalf of their writers with themselves to do deals for themselves. And so the writers said, this is bullshit. They created a code of conduct. They told the four big agencies that they had a week to comply with the code of conduct that would require them to represent the talent fairly and to put their interests ahead of the agency's interests. None of the agencies said they would do it. And at the end of the week, 7,000 writers fired all of their agents. Every writer in Hollywood fired their agent. And for 22 months, they ground out a strike. And while that was a hard thing for writers to do, they kept uh, on the line together. They kept their solidarity. Writers who didn't need to do this, writers who were in really good shape, who were making great money, who were the Taylor Swifts of their industry, stuck out there on the picket line, along with writers who were newbies in the field. And because they stuck together, all four agencies caved. And the leader of that strike told us, you know, at the start of the strike, everybody in Hollywood thought of their agent as being the gatekeeper, as having all the power. After all, every job they got, they got through an agent. Studios never called a writer to offer them a job. They called an agency to offer them a job. And in fact, more often, the agency would call the studio to get a job. But after 22 months on strike, they realized that these agencies only had power because the writers had given it to them. That it's possible to imagine making movies and TV without agencies, but it's impossible to imagine doing it without writers. And in fact, lots of TV got made in the 22 months that all of those agents were fired and the agencies eventually caved. And so it's great to have Taylor Swift out there standing up for artists. It sucks that we have other creators who sell out like Joe Rogan taking his hundred million bucks from uh, Spotify to be exclusive to Spotify. But, you know, really, it, this is not a game of individual heroes and villains. This is a game of big systemic forces in which you have to be part of a movement to really make a difference. I really like this as well. There's this suggestion of non-market jobs, of sort of New Deal-style job guarantees. And I do think one of the difficult things about the creative industries is entering into them. You need to put in some time where you might not be paid in order to create something to prove your worth. And I was thinking about this, and I, was, I, I, I love the suggestion of non-market jobs and job guarantees, but why non-market jobs? Why did you not just suggest universal basic income outright? I mean, I, I am a little skeptical of UBI for various reasons, but I think that a job guarantee has a strong theoretical basis that answers some of the questions that UBI doesn't answer. So UBI 
doesn't answer where production will come from. UBI kind of assumes that we have uh, abundance and that we can just allocate our abundant resources by guaranteeing everyone a share of them. And certainly we have lots of misallocation, but it seems pretty clear to me that we have more labor ahead of us than we have laborers to do. You know, we're going to have to do things like relocate every coastal city in the world 20 kilometers inland or uphill over the next 300 years. That's going to require every hand we have. It's it's not time for the human race to go on on half time. And a job guarantee actually can do a lot of what UBI is meant to do, but on a more sound economic footing. To understand how job guarantees work, and, and here I'll, I'll recommend that people read Pavlina Cherneva's excellent short book on this, The Job Guarantee. To understand how it works, you have to understand first that money doesn't work the way that we've been historically told. Um, money for public programs doesn't come from our tax. Governments do tax money out of the economy, but not to pay for programs. If you think about it for a minute, it's pretty obvious. Governments have to first spend the money before there's any money to tax. All the money in circulation starts with the government. If they were, if they had to tax before they could spend, where would the dollars come from, right? How would you have a dollar to give the money in, in tax unless the government had already spent it into existence? And so money is spent into existence and taxed back out of existence in the same way that, say, like iTunes gift certificates are spent into existence and taxed back out of existence. When you redeem an iTunes gift card, that number is an added to a pool that is then recirculated. They don't have to wait until the gift cards have been redeemed before they can make new gift cards available. But there is one resource that the government can procure effectively without limit, without creating any inflationary pressure, and that's the labor of people who aren't employed. By definition, if a government bids on the labor of someone who isn't employed, they are not bidding on something that the private sector will bid against them for. And so the price won't be bid up. You won't get inflation. And so the government could create a genuine minimum wage through a job guarantee. Right now, the minimum wage is not $7.25 an hour. It's not $15 an hour. It's $0 an hour. That's how much money you get if no one will give you a job. That is the minimum wage. The government could create federally funded, locally apportioned jobs where they spend the money into existence to pay for people to do jobs that are locally determined to suit local needs. And those could include artistic jobs. Those jobs can be provided at a socially inclusive wage with benefits, and that will produce more pressure on the private sector than any amount of regulation, right? If you say you can quit your job at a restaurant where you get sexually harassed, where you get underpaid, you can quit that and walk the next day into a federally guaranteed job doing something that you're either qualified for or that you are then trained for, then the restaurant will have to adjust those circumstances, even if we don't regulate them, because no one will work under those conditions if they can get a better job somewhere else. And so within the context of a jobs guarantee, there's room for arts jobs as well. During the, the WPA, during the New Deal, there was a jobs guarantee that paid for some of the most important work that we have to be produced. Uh, the Diego Rivera uh, murals, the, the photographs of Dorothy Lange, lots of literature, oral histories, and so on. They were all paid for through federal funding as a way of providing full employment during the Depression. 
but also as a way of enriching the cultural heritage of America. Today, those are considered to be critical pieces of America's cultural landscape. So one thing I really liked is that despite the huge hurdles, this book, I came away feeling hopeful for the future. I came away feeling invigorated and full of ideas for myself. So I guess to round things off, I wanted to ask, do you have hope that the ideas you've left on the table might bring about some change? Well, look, anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. And, you know, the system as designed is completely untenable. It is uh, wreaking havoc on the fans and the artists and doing bad things for our culture and even for the people who work in the large firms. You know, one of the things that we touch on a little in the book is that having five publishers isn't just bad for writers. It's really bad for editors because it means that there's only five companies that can offer you a job. And so everybody is poorly served by this process. Everybody is in a bad situation for it, except for a few shareholders and a few top executives. And under those circumstances, I think there is reason to hope that we'll see real change, that we'll see change across the sector. And we're not just counting on this arising solely out of workers. We recount the uh, advice of James Boyle, who's a copyright scholar from Scotland who lives in North Carolina. He runs the Center for the Public Domain at Duke University with Jennifer Jenkins. And Jamie says that before the term ecology was coined, it wasn't really clear that people were on the same side. You know, if you cared about owls and I cared about the ozone layer, how were we on the same fight? You know, you want to do something about charismatic nocturnal avians, and I'm worried about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere. What do we have to do with each other? The term ecology took a thousand issues and made them into a single movement. And there are so many people who labor under excessive corporate power who are harmed by excessive corporate power on the buy side and on the sell side, on the citizen side where their politics are corrupted by this. Pure corporate power gave us the ability for corporations to interfere in our politics in a way that they have never been allowed to do to a scale that has never been seen. And we see all of our regulations turning into auctions and we see all of our policies turning into catastrophes. And I think that that can only go on for so long and that our job as activists is to help people join up the dots between the things that they're struggling with and the things that we're struggling with to help them understand that there's solidarity among us because we are all fighting different aspects of the same fight. That was Cory Doctorow, journalist and co-author of Chokepoint Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. His co-author is Rebecca Giblin. Cory has also written a bunch of other books, including some great sci-fi novels, which I love. We'll put links to his work in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is a production of Sighted Media. Our producers are myself, Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. Our editor and usual host is Gordon Katic. He'll be back next episode. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. Help us avoid choke point capitalism. Support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. And subscribe or follow in your favorite choke point capitalist podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>